It's wonderful to be with you this evening. It's Thursday night. And tonight we're going to be starting a new course on the book of James. And I'm very excited to be sharing this with you because it's week one of the new series on the book of James. Welcome. It's lovely to be with you. Father God, I want to thank you for this exciting book. I want to thank you for what you showed me today. I want to thank you for just such revelation and for such insight. I want to thank you that as people listen to this teaching, that they too will be excited about what you are saying to us, Holy Spirit, through the book of James. I want to thank you for your anointing to brood on the teaching. I want to thank you, Holy Spirit, as ever. You are the after teacher, and it is you that equips your body into the fullness of their destiny. So I thank you for the anointing to permeate this place tonight. In the wonderful name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, it's so wonderful to be with you tonight. It's wonderful to be sharing this with you tonight. I must say, I had great a great time in preparation and just digging deep and seeing what it is God wanted us to know. So I'm very excited tonight. Okay, first of all, we're going to look be looking at the book of James. And the book of James was written in about 49 to, 48 to 49 AD. It was definitely written before 50 AD. It was prominently written to a Jewish church as it does not address any of the controversial things that occurred at that time after the salvation of the Gentiles. For example, should Gentiles be circumcised? So we see that it is predominantly written to a Jewish church. The second thing I want to talk to you about tonight is who was James? Well, he never actually identifies himself. In James 1 verse 1, he says, James, a servant of God, and of the Lord Jesus Christ. But most theologians agree that the author was James, the half-brother of Jesus. James the Apostle had been beheaded in 44 AD, so it couldn't possibly have been him. But when we look at other references, we become pretty sure that it was James, um, the brother of, of Jesus. At first, James did not believe in Jesus, and he challenged him, and he was not a follower of Jesus. And during the t that he was on the time during his time on earth. And you know the incredible thing was, isn't it so funny how so often whenever God calls a mighty person like Joseph, like David, like Jesus, their own family don't recognize what they carry and they reject them. Along with his other brothers and his mother, they try to stop Jesus doing what Jesus was called to do. We see in Mark 3 verse 31 to 35, Who are my mother and brothers? Jesus said. After they try to stop him from ministering, whoever does the will of my father who is in heaven is my brother, my sister, and my mother. In John 7 verse 5 it says, not even his brothers believed in him. Later on, James became very prominent in the church. He became a believer and an apostle after the resurrection. While, just as with Paul, Jesus presented himself to James personally. It says in 1 Corinthians 15 verse 5 to 7, he appeared to Peter and then to the 12. Listen to the order of this. I find it very interesting. He appeared to Peter and then to the 12. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers at the same time. Then he appeared to James and to all the other apostles. And last, he appeared to me. Now, I find that really an interesting passage of scripture that Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians. Because 
he appeared to Peter and then to the 12, but there were only 11 of them because Judas had already died. So the 12 included, included Mary Magdalene because she saw Jesus in the resurrected life. And then he appeared all at once to 500 others. And then he came and he presented himself to James personally. How kind is Jesus? James rejected him. In his season that he was walking on earth, as his brother, he rejected him. And yet he went and presented himself to James personally. We know that um, Paul wasn't following Jesus when Jesus was on earth. And we know that Paul um, was still not following Jesus at the death of Stephen, which was about 34 AD. And then there was a season that he persecuted the church. So it was only a few years later that Paul encountered Jesus when he was knocked off the off his horse and he was blinded but the kindness of god that in that time he had an encounter with the resurrected jesus and so i just always love reading about that because paul the apostle had the same type of encounter that we are able to have with the resurrected christ isn't that wonderful okay so three years after his conversion Paul then went to Jerusalem to see Peter and James. It says in Galatians 1 verse 19, After three years I went to Jerusalem to get acquainted with Peter. I saw none of the other apostles, only James, the Lord's brother. So now we can see in the unfolding, James had an encounter with Jesus after his resurrection. When Paul went to go and see the apostles in Jerusalem, James was numbered as one of the apostles and clearly said that he was the Lord's brother. And then um, we see that he became, he stood up as the leader of the church in Jerusalem. And when they were discussing, when they came and gave all the testimony about what had happened among the Gentiles and the, and the apostles in Jerusalem weren't sure whether this was the right thing that the Gentiles were exposed to the fullness of God. It was James as the leader of the church in Jerusalem that stood up at the council in Jerusalem and he said this is right and he quoted and that was in Acts 15 verse 13 to 22 and he said this is right and he quoted Amos 9 verse 11 and he sanctioned that the gospel should be preached among the brothers as well and so it's really very exciting to see how James rose up as a mighty apostle and as the leader of the church in Jerusalem and was acknowledged by Peter as being a leader because when Peter was let out of prison he went in Acts 12 verse 17 and when they saw him after he was let out he said tell James and the brothers about this and then he, he said this and then he left to go to another place and so Peter acknowledged that James was an important one to send back the information about Peter's safety too. So it's wonderful to see how James, the brother of Jesus Christ, rose up and became a mighty man of God after Jesus died and after the resurrection. And so um, most people believe that it was this James, the one that rose up in Jerusalem, the one that was an apostle in Jerusalem, that wrote the book of James to the church. What is the main purpose of the book of James? Well, as the pastor of the Jerusalem church, James wrote to instruct and to encourage his dispersed people in the face of their difficulties. And one of the reasons I felt that I wanted to unpack this book to you a little bit more, friends, 
is because the church in Jerusalem found themselves in the similar place to where we find ourselves today. The church has been dispersed. The people have been dispersed. They faced many difficulties over the last 18 months. People have been shaken. People have been feeling insecure. They've had trials. They've had temptations. They've had all kinds of things come against them. They haven't had the security of each other. They haven't been standing together because they were separated. And this is the church that he writes the letter of James to. It is a letter discussing true religion, true faith, and true wisdom. So it's an exciting book. I love it. Okay, James 1 verse 1, James says, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ to the 12 tribes scattered among the nations. Greetings. They faced many trials and many temptations. Why do we go through trials? And he goes on to discuss this with the church. The first thing he says in verse 2, Consider it pure joy, my brothers, which means exceeding joy, a calm delight, an occasion for joy. Whenever you face trials of many kinds, the King James says diverse temptations. The word trials means an experiment or a proving of your fidelity, which means your faithfulness and your loyalty, of your integrity, your honesty and your honor, of your virtue, your high moral standard, of consistency, being dependable and being devoted, of eternal temptation, what is going on in your heart and mind, of a mental state by which we are enticed into sin, of rebellion against God. It is the temptation that the devil brought against Jesus. So friends, he says, guys, when these things start happening to you, celebrate, be excited about it, consider it pure joy. Why? Why was he saying this? Because you have to understand you're being tested. You're being tested. Measure the onslaught of the trial and the onslaught of the temptation with a measure of how much you're being tested. Why are you being tested? Because God wants to see how faithful you are. God wants to see how honest you are, how much integrity there is in your life. God wants to see what is your moral standard. God wants to see are you consistent and dependable. God wants to know what your inner temptations are. God wants to know what your mental status. He wants to know whether there's rebellion in your heart. And it's the same type of temptation that came against Jesus. So when it happens, consider it joy because God thinks very highly of you. Isn't that amazing? Isn't it amazing when terrible things happen that he says respond in joy. Get excited about it. Know that God is in control. You know, in Nehemiah 8 verse 10, it says the joy of the Lord is our strength. Friends, we don't have joy because of the circumstance. We have joy because God trusts us enough to let us go through that circumstance. God believes in us enough. He trusts us enough to say they're going to be fine because they stand steadfast on that which is within them. They are rooted on the rock of Jesus Christ. They will not fail. They're going to be fine and I'm going to turn everything to good. So celebrate, rejoice. Nehemiah says the joy of the Lord is your strength. Psalm 16 verse 11 says, you have shown me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. 
at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Friends, what is the key when we're going through trials and temptations? Joy. Rejoice. Celebrate. Don't look at the circumstances. If you look at the circumstances, the enemy is going to come. He's going to rise up. There's going to be internal temptation and torment. There's going to be confusion. He's going to bombard your mind. He's going to make you believe deception. He's going to make you believe a lie. He's going to cause you to, to fumble or to fail or not to trust God. Friends, trials and temptations are part of the path of life. Psalm 16 11, you have shown me the path of of life it's part of the past but in your presence is fullness of joy and so how do we find joy in times of great trial and temptation friends we have to enter into his presence we don't try and work it out we don't try and understand we don't try and go into our mental space and try and make sense of it we can't just go into the presence and find the fullness of joy Friends, that was the state that the church in Jerusalem were in at that time. And the pastor, the one was there to care about them, to care for them, and to make sure that they were in good standing with God, said to them, do not be overcome by your trials, but consider it pure joy, because God trusts you enough for you to walk through this, knowing that you're going to be great because you trust him. And he's going to turn this to good. But Kathy, how can he turn this to good? Well, I'm not God. I don't know. But I do know one thing. He is faithful. And he never, ever, ever, ever leaves us. He never forsakes us. And he never, ever fails us. Verse 3 says, Because you know. Friends, that word know is that same intimate knowing of love making of intimacy between a husband and his wife it's that same type of knowing intimately it's because you know you know God you know Jesus you know the Holy Spirit you know your God because you know because you can feel him because you understand him because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance that word faith means a conviction of truth. It means to be convicted that God exists and that the creator is the ruler of all things. It is an unshakable conviction that you believe in Jesus the Messiah and that he is faithful in his character. It is an unshakable faith in God the Father in Jesus and in the Holy Spirit. Because you know out of intimacy that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. And that means steadfastness, consistency, endurance, patience. And perseverance must finish its work so that you may be mature, complete, not lacking anything. Friends, for us to go from being baby Christians... To mature Christians that can unshakably stand on the rock of Jesus Christ and that have an unshakable faith, we have to walk through the path of trials and temptation. It's part of it. So these trials come, these difficult times come, these times come that we think, I'm not going to make this. This is too big for me. This is too much for me. And God says, no, it's not. 
just stand unshakably, stand unshakably and come into my presence and come into the fullness of joy and let my joy fill you. Don't let your mental state go to other places. Don't be tempted with it. Stand in that place of trusting him in the presence for fullness of joy. You know, I think sometimes people think you're being hard and uncaring. When you don't allow them to embrace you or pull you into their mental thinking. Because that mental thinking brings death, friends. And you can't come into agreement with that because you're coming into agreement with death. You've got to come into agreement with life and life in abundance. And in trials and temptations, rejoice. Not because of the trial, but because he is in control and he is going to come through for you. All you've got to do is stand in his presence and rejoice. Now, perseverance must finish its work that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. You know, Peter wrote a similar passage of scripture. And I've often said to you, we never build a theology on one scripture. You've got to get it out of two or three witnesses. So I'm going to just look at Peter's version of a similar scripture right now. In 2 Peter 1 verse 3 to 11, and I'm going to read the whole chunky bit because I think it's really important. We're doing a Bible study. I want to dig deep and I want you to, to learn from lots of word because the word is truth and life. Peter says his divine power, that word power is dunamis. So the Holy Spirit dunamis power has given us everything that we need for life. That word life is Zoe, for the fullness of life, the fullness of our vitality. You have everything you need, friends, for the fullness of life and the fullness of your vitality and godliness. Godliness means a reverence, respect towards God and holiness. Through your knowledge of him, remember it says because you know, through your knowledge of him, who called us by his own glory and goodness, through these he has given us his very great and precious promises, so that through them you may be partakers of the divine nature. Friends, through the promises of God, he wants you to be a partaker of him. He wants you to partake of everything that he has. And he has given you everything that you need, every single thing. There's nothing more that he needs to give you. You've just got to walk in it and receive it for the partakers of the... Um, uh, you may be partakers of the divine nature. And that word, that God is the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Philippians 2 verse 5 says that our attitude needs to be exactly the same as Christ Jesus in every single situation. Peter goes on to say, to escape the corruption of this world caused by evil desires. So he's saying, you have everything you have divine power to escape the corruption of this world caused by evil desires. And that word evil desires means lust. You have everything you need and you can partake of the divine nature of God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. You do not in any way have to fall to temptation. And he says, for this reason, for what reason? To be able to stand and not fall by the, the, by the evil desires and the lust. Friends, what are the evil desires and the lust? Feeling sorry for ourselves, feeding our lust, feeding our flesh, doing things from the flesh and not from the spirit, going back into being all human instead of knowing we're only a human body filled with the divine nature of God. And we've got to draw deep from the spirit of God. So he says, for this very reason, make every effort. Friends, that means 
you have to rise up and do something. Now, so many people say, my walk with God is not a walk of striving. It's not up to me. It's all about him. Well, the truth of the matter is, it is all about him. He's done everything. But he wants a response from us, friends. And our response to him is what gives us in the place where we can receive. He sets a table. Now he says, come and eat. You've got to get up and eat. Is that striving? No, it's a response. He says that um, I'll, I'll make you lie down in green pastures, but you've got to lie down. He's the one that makes everything available to us, but we have to go and partake of it. And if we don't partake of it, we just stay in exactly the same place because it's a two-way thing. And in this, he says, you've got everything. I've given you everything. Now partake of it. How do we partake of it? It says, make every effort to add to your faith. Faith. It says in Romans 12, um, Romans 12 verse 1 or 2, it says that by the same measure of faith, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought to, but by the measure of faith that you were given. We are given faith. Faith doesn't come from us. We're given faith. The power gift of the Holy Spirit, the dunamis gift, is a gift of faith. The outworking of the Holy Spirit in your life, that as He grows and transforms you, He transforms faith as one of the fruits that come out of your life. Everyone has been given a measure of faith. Make every effort to add to the faith that you've been given, goodness, and to the goodness, knowledge, and to the knowledge, self-control, and to the self-control, perseverance. Remember, James said, faith and perseverance go together. He said this, because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. So now Peter says, here's your faith. Make every effort to add to your faith goodness. What is goodness, friends? It's operating in the opposite spirit. I've done a lot of things on teaching how to operate in the opposite spirit. How to not be overcome by evil, but to overcome evil with good. How to bless those that curse you. How to come in the opposite spirit. How to operate out of goodness. You have to be the one that plats the whip. You've got to be the one that waits, that holds, that doesn't just react, but waits until you are able to respond because you've stepped into the spirit, man, and you've heard what the spirit says. So making every effort means standing. When you've done all else to stand, stand. It means fixing your eyes on Jesus unshakably. It means rejoicing when you want to weep. You see, friends, the Bible says put on a garment of praise for a spirit of heaviness. When you feel heavy, get up and praise. It takes effort. But you have to take great effort to add to your faith goodness. To come in the opposite spirit. And then it says to add to goodness knowledge. It takes great effort to spend time in the presence of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the gift of knowledge, friends. We get the gift of knowledge from the Holy Spirit. It's one of the, the, five, the seven gifts before the throne. But we also get knowledge as we dig into the word of God. It takes effort to sit down and dig into the Word of God. It takes effort to put time aside so that you can enter into the presence of God. Great effort. But as you add to your faith that He gave you, goodness, by stepping back, not reacting, responding, coming in the opposite spirit, 
And then you spend time in the presence of God and in the word of God to increase your knowledge, to increase your understanding, to increase your word revelation, because every single one of us have to train ourselves to be godly. Timothy 1, 4, 1 Timothy 4 verse 7b. And then it says, and add to your knowledge self-control. But even there, friends, you've got a gift because it says in Titus 2.11, the grace of God teaches us to say no. What is self-control? Saying no to temptation. Saying I'm not going to be partaking of this. Saying to a crowd of people that are going to lead you in the wrong direction, I'm leaving. Saying I'm not having that. Saying to the flesh, you know, we can't help things that flash in front of our eyes. But we can help a second look. And you are responsible for your second look. You can't help the things you hear, but you can help the things you listen to. So we've got to rise up in self-control and say, I'm not going to look. I'm not going to listen. I'm not going to partake this. I'm not going to be part of something that violates the kingdom of heaven. The Bible says flee from every appearance of evil. It doesn't say wait until it's so bad that you've been sucked in and there's nothing you can do about it and then try and leave. It says, when it looks like it's going to be evil, get out of there. That's self-control, friends. It's being able to say no when you are being tempted to do something that you know is being flesh-led. And saying no, friends, it takes effort. That takes great effort because you've got to make a choice that, number one, goes against the spirit you want to come out of because you want to come in the same spirit. You want to be mean when somebody's mean. And because it takes great effort to say to your flesh, I'm not feeding you. Great effort. So you add to your faith goodness. Come in the opposite spirit. You add to your goodness a greater revelation of the word of God, more knowledge, more understanding, more time in the presence of God. Then you add self-control. You take a hold of that gift of grace and you learn to say no. You know grace is the word charis. It means the divine influence upon the heart reflected through the life. And you allow the spirit of God within you to give you the power and the authority to say no. But he said, I've already given you the divine power to do it. You've just got to draw from it. And then it says, and add to your self-control, perseverance. Now, friends, perseverance means that you stand. God said it, I believe it, that settles it, and I'm not doing anything else until it happens. How long do you stand? You stand until something happens. You don't say, oh, well, I persevered and nothing happened, so I left. No, you stand until something happens. Once you've got the faith for it, you don't stop until it's established. You stand, stand, stand. You fix your eyes on Jesus. You don't look to the left. You don't look to the right. You don't listen to people this side. You don't listen to people that side. You don't get swayed by the opinion of man. You fix your eyes on Jesus. You take your thoughts captive. When the enemy comes, he says, shut up. And you fix your mind on Christ. Hebrews 3, uh, Hebrews 3 and Hebrews 12. Fix your eyes on Jesus. Fix your mind on Christ. And you stand, 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 stand. Until the breakthrough comes. This is great effort, friends. This is you taking control of your thoughts, of your mouth, and of your flesh. And then suddenly, there's always a suddenly after perseverance. And suddenly there's a breakthrough. And that's the most exciting thing, friends. Because when that breakthrough happens, you move into the effect of it. It's no longer effort. It's an overflow of your heart. You see, you add to perseverance godliness. Suddenly, everything about you is an attitude of greater godliness. You reflect more of Him. 
People meet you and they see more of him. Why? Because you made this effort and the overflow is greater godliness. And then to godliness, you add brotherly kindness. Suddenly you find yourself being kind to people. <coughs> Suddenly you find yourself being loving and affectionate and, and caring about other people. And to brotherly kindness, you add love. And you know what, friends, what I love about this is that as you grow out of perseverance, more godliness, more brotherly kindness, more love, suddenly you find yourself in a place where your faith has been increased. And there's just so much more faith and so much more ability to stand unshakably on what God has said. And because there's been an increase of faith, friends, guess what? There's an increase of testing where once again, it's an effort to stand because things are going to happen where you've got to be good and show goodness when you want to show something else. And you've got to increase your word knowledge at another level, friends, and time in the presence at another level. And you've got to increase self-control because now your faith is more, which means that you've got to have greater self-control. And once again, you've got to stand because now there's bigger things to trust God for. <coughs> and the outworking of that, friends, is more increased God-likeness. An increase of brotherly kindness. The love of God overflows in you at such a great measure. And once again, faith has grown within you. And I call this the circuit of life because it repeats itself over and over and over again. As we grow, these things start happening again. Now it goes on to say in 1 Peter, if you possess these qualities in increasing measure, in other words, they keep getting more and more and more. They will keep you from being ineffective and unproductive in your knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. But there's a warning. But if anyone does not have them, he is nearsighted and blind and has forgotten that he was once cleansed from his past sins. Therefore, my brothers, be all the more eager to make your calling and election sure. Now, friends, <clears throat> be all the more eager to make your calling and election sure. That's an interesting passage of scripture because that is suggesting that if you are not growing and building and learning more and more and more and more, that the opposite is true as well. Because it goes on to say, if you do these things, you will never fall. You will receive a rich welcome into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So Jesus is saying, work on your salvation. Work on your salvation. How do we work on it? We allow ourselves to go through the testings and to go through the trials so that we can come in the opposite spirit so that we can increase in our knowledge and increase in our revelation of times in the presence and times in the word of God, so that we can put more self-control into action through the way we make choices, so that we learn to stand unshakably until this suddenly happens. The overflow is far more God-likeness in our life, and we look more like him, and every time we live a season of the increase 
of the overflow and the effect of standing on truth, our faith increases. And it's a journey, it's a circle of life. And he says, if you do this, you will never ever fall and you will receive a great welcome in heaven. Isn't that the most amazing passage of scripture? I find it so simple to, and so easy to understand and so amazing and such an incredible encouragement from the Lord and from Peter. James said, faith and perseverance have to be completed so that the maturity can come. Peter said there are steps to growing into maturity. Put the two together and the end result is strong Christians that are built on the rock of Jesus Christ and they will not fall no matter what storms come, no matter what winds come, no matter what waves come because they are built on the rock of Jesus Christ. Remember James was talking to a dispersed church that was going through terrible trials and friends many many of us have gone through terrible trials in this last time and we're still in the midst of some very difficult trials and so it's really important to see how do we work our way out of trials through faith and perseverance taking us into far greater maturity okay let's carry on in James the next thing James addresses is wisdom now Wisdom is the word Sophia, and it means higher and lower wisdom, worldly and spiritual wisdom. It means broad and full knowledge. It is the science of learning. Wisdom which belongs to men, knowledge of things human and divine. It is the act of interpreting dreams. If you want to be able to interpret dreams, ask God for more wisdom. It is discovering the meaning of some mysteries, numbers, or visions. It's a skill and discernment to um, in imparting Christian truths. So if you want to teach and have more insight in imparting Christian truths, ask for an increase of wisdom. It is supreme intelligence. It is wisdom of God evident in forming and executing counsel in the formation and governments of the world and the scripture. So it's really, really important that we understand this passage about wisdom because it's an increase in worldly wisdom, in our ability to learn, but it's also an increase in spiritual wisdom. In Proverbs 2 verse 6 it says, For the Lord gives wisdom. From his mouth comes knowledge and understanding. All wisdom comes from God, friends. He is the very source of wisdom. In fact, one of the seven spirits before the throne is the spirit of wisdom. And we know that one of the dunamis powerful gifts in 1 Corinthians 12 that we get as a gift from the spirit is the spirit is the word of wisdom. And then it says in Ephesians 1.17, Paul said, I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him more. So Paul is praying for the church to increase in it. And Proverbs tells us it comes from the Lord. And James says to us, you ask for it. So James 1 verse 5. If any of you lack wisdom, he should ask of God. Listen to this. Who gives generously to all without finding fault. And it will be given to you. You know what it means? It means if you want wisdom, ask God for it. He's not going to come to you and say, well, you know what, Kathy? You haven't done this and you haven't done that and you've been a naughty girl here and you've done this wrong and you've done that wrong. Mm -mm, I don't think I'm going to give you any wisdom. No, God is generous. He just pours it out 
And he isn't going to find fault. He says, I'm so excited. Somebody's asking me for wisdom. I'm so delighted about that. I'm going to pour it out generously. God is incredibly generous. He's incredibly kind. He's incredibly good. He's full of love. And remember something. When he looks down on you, he sees the blood of Jesus. He doesn't see the things that you've done wrong. That's the Holy Spirit's job because the Holy Spirit comes and he says, uh-uh. I think we need to do some changes here. But the Father just pours generously into our lives if we ask for wisdom. Verse 6. But when you ask, you must believe and not doubt. Because he who doubts is like the wave of the sea blown and tossed by the wind. That man should not think he will receive anything from the Lord. For he is double-minded and is unstable in all his ways. Now I want you to understand this very clearly. God pours out wisdom to anyone who asks. But a double-minded man cannot receive it. You know, if you could imagine that God is pouring out this, this waterfall of wisdom right here. But I'm double-minded and I'm saying, I want wisdom. No, I don't want wisdom. Yes, I want wisdom. No, I don't want wisdom. Yes, I want wisdom, but I don't know if I can trust for wisdom. Yeah. I'm never going to receive it. It's never going to land on me because I'm going to be all over the place. I'm not going to be able to receive it. So what he's saying is if you're double-minded, you can't receive it. It's not that he hasn't given it. He has. But you're not receiving it because you are double-minded. Now, the word double-minded means dip sukos, and it's made up of two words. The one is dis, which means two, and the other one is saki, which means breath spirit or um, the breath so now we're talking about having two spirits or having two breaths we discussed this in Matthew 7 where it says don't be double-minded don't think like the world and think like the kingdom of God don't ask God for something and solve it in the world don't ask God for wisdom or don't ask God for the way to do something and then go according to the world system to do it. Friends, if you're asking God for supreme divine wisdom, you wait until you get supreme divine wisdom and you don't follow the ways of this world. Psalm 1 warns us, do not sit in the counsel of the ungodly. So if you're asking God and trusting God, wait persevere stand until you get what you want don't go running after every single person asking what do you think what do you think what do you think what do you think because then you're listening to two winds you're listening to the holy spirit you're listening to the god of this world you're listening to the opinion of man and you haven't got a clue what you're doing you're double-minded and unstable in all your ways and unfortunately that really is the picture of the modern church unstable in all its ways because it's got one foot in the world, one foot in the church. It sort of picks and chooses which way, what I want to do here, what I want to do there, which voice I'm going to listen to, which counsel I'm going to listen to, who's going to be my advisors. Friends, the Word of God says in James, and we're going to get there, if you're in trouble, you pray. Because you need to hear what God is saying. If you're sick, go call the elders. But you know what we do when we're in trouble? We ask everybody to pray for us and we listen to 500 voices. When we're sick, we run to the first medical person we can find or alternate medicine we can find or some other means of medicine that we can find and we never come to God, our healer, to help us. Don't be double-minded. Don't listen to the voice of this world, the God of this world, the system of this world and the opinion of this world and try and listen to the Holy Spirit at the same time because that way you will not receive 
anything from God. And it's not because he doesn't want to give it to you. He wants to pour it out generously. But it's because you're not standing still long enough to receive it. You see, he gave you a little bit of faith. But you're not operating out of goodness. You're coming out of the same spirit. You're not incre increasing your knowledge of the word of God or the understanding of who he is or getting to know his perfume, his smell, his character, his ways. You're not operating in self-control and you have absolutely no perseverance. And the end result is that tiny little bit of faith he gave you orig originally just shrivels up and becomes less and less and less. And then you blame God. Where were you, God? Waiting for you to receive what I have generously poured into your life. So we've got to be very careful of being double-minded and we've got to become single-minded friends. When you've done all else to stand, stand. Fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and the finisher of your faith. If he said he was going to do it, he is going to do it. But it's not going to happen in your timing. And it's not going to happen the way you think it's going to happen. It's going to happen according to the incredible creator of the universe who can see far more than you can see. And he is going to do it. And his answer and his solutions may not look the way we think they were going to look. But you know, if you can understand that he sees eternity and he looks what's best for eternity, not just for this moment, and whatever he decisions he makes, it's for eternal glory, friends, for your good and eternal glory. If we look at it like that, we really can trust him a little bit more because we see so small. We see, we see in part, we see in a, in, in, in a mirror dimly. Trust him. But do not be double-minded. Do not look to the left. Do not look to the right. Do not ask the opinion of people that are baby Christians and definitely don't get the opinion of those that are in the world. Because what will they offer you? They will offer you another spirit, another breath, another wind, and it'll be the voice of the evil one. Be careful, friends. And then we have the voice of the evil one directly attacking and tormenting our mind. That's why we've got to take our thoughts captive. We have to see it. From God's perspective. We have to see it from heaven down and not from circumstances up. If you want to be a mighty man or woman of God, stand fixed. Great effort. Persevere till breakthrough. And you will find that what oozes out of you is just so much more of Him. Spending time speaking in tongues is the quickest way to grow in wisdom. You'll just find that within the hour, Things that will come out of your mouth, you'll think, where did that come from? I need to remember that because the spirit of wisdom within you will start oozing and pouring out of your mouth. It's such an exciting time. Don't be double-minded, friends. If you want to receive great things from God, learn to stand unshakably single-minded, fixed on His word, on His truth, and looking into His face. Okay. You've got to see things from God's perspective. He goes on to say this in James 1 verse 9. My brother in humble circumstances ought to take pride in his high position. Once again, he's saying, see it from God's perspective. Joy, be joyful, rejoice when you're going through difficult times. Now, if, you, if you're battling and if you're poor and, you, and, and you've got humble circumstances, celebrate because you are in such a high position. When God looks at you and the things you're going through, he's saying, isn't that person amazing? Aren't they amazing? Look how amazing. 
raising their arm and he's elevated them in a high position because they are standing going through difficult circumstances. But to the one who is rich should take pride in his low position because he will pass away like a flower. For the sun rises with scorching heat and withers the plant. It blossoms fall and its beauty is destroyed. In the same way, the rich man will fade away even while he goes about his duties. Now, is that because God doesn't like rich people? No. He's talking in terms of trials. If you feel self-sufficient and you've got everything you want and you feel like, I'm okay, Jack, well, you're going to wither away as quickly as a flower. But if you are having to stand and you're finding it difficult and you're having to persevere and you're having to trust God, God says, I am raising you up and all of heaven is celebrating because you are being elevated. You see, the more you humble yourself, the more he elevates you. The more that you, that you see yourself going through difficult times, the more you're going to see glory. God looks at things from a completely different place that we look at it, friends. And don't think, I'm okay, Jack. I'm fine while others are battling because what God is doing in their life is going to for eternity be seen as glory. Isn't that amazing? Blessed, and he goes back to talk about perseverance. Blessed is the man who perseveres under trial because when he has stood the test, he will receive a crown of life that God has promised for those who love him. Friends, being single-minded, fixed on Christ, is our greatest way of showing our love for the Father. It takes us into deeper worship and it takes us into word knowledge because we've got to dig for answers and we've got to find answers from Him. And it's the most incredible way for our other Father to know we love Him. We love Him. We're not confused. We're not running around trying to find answers from everybody, trying to find a quick fix. We love him and we prepare to see him manifest himself on our behalf and to see the glory of God manifest. Now, the crown of life, um, if you look at the little picture in your book, it says, for those who suffer for the name of Christ, especially those who lay down their lives for him, we receive the crown of life by being faithful to the Lord Jesus Christ. And Revelations 2 verse 10 also mentions the crown of life. And then James goes on to say, but be careful because temptation doesn't come from God. He says um, in James 1.13, when tempted, when you're going through a trial, do not say God is tempting me, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anybody. But each one is tempted when by his own evil desires or lusts, he is dragged away and enticed. Then when lust or desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it's fully grown, gives birth to death. Now, friends, I want you just to look at this page again that I started off with. When we are being spirit-led, the Spirit of God pours into our imagination or our heart. And it keeps our heart or our imagination pure. It pours into our feelings. And even though we are bombarded with other things, our feelings are calm and peaceful and full of joy because they're being fed by the Spirit and not by circumstances. The Spirit of God pours into our thoughts and our mind is still and, and the, the kingdom of heaven is in our mind. Righteousness, peace and joy. And then our flesh follows.
follows the spirit. But when the enemy comes and tempts us, he appeals to the desires of our flesh, friends. And that's why we have to flee from all appearance of evil. And if we just look at that picture, that's the picture I'm referring back to. The moment that the tempter, which is the devil, comes and he peels and he shows something that our flesh wants. The Bible says in James that where temptation and desire meet, sin is conceived. And sin, and it's conceived in our heart, in our imagination, friends. You have to imagine it before you partake of it. Every single thing that we've ever partaken, fear, you've got to imagine something fearful. Anxiety, you've got to imagine that something terrible is going to happen. You've got to, it's, it's the enemy coming along in our imagination and putting thoughts in our imagination. And we come into agreement with it. Why? Because our flesh always wants to go to the tempter for satisfaction. When we've got to go to the spirit for satisfaction. And the moment that sin has conceived with that temptation, the desire has conceived with the temptation, sin is conceived. It's conceived as a tiny little pregnancy in our heart, in our imagination, friends. And then we'll start thinking on it. Now, the, our spirit man is still big, and we can still hear the voice of God. But as we start spending more time thinking on it, you see, thinking about something lustful, or thinking about anxiety, or thinking about fear, or allowing torment to, to torment our minds, or allowing our mind to go after the things that bring death. It starts growing and occupying our thoughts. Now, when that happens, it starts crushing our spirit. And our spirit starts getting smaller because our mind is now not being filled with the spirit of peace and righteousness and joy. But it's being filled with anxiety and fret and, and, and fear and lust and whatever else the, the, the flesh is craving and has conceived. And then it starts affecting our feelings. And when it starts affecting our feelings, it's grown, friends, so much that the spirit has completely been shrunken. And this is usually when we start having cyclic behavior patterns where you feel you're fine one day, but then suddenly this thing takes over. And that's when you can see people starting to change because they feel different. They start being more um, deceptive or they start being more full of anger or they start being more driven by lust or they, they start being more tormented or more depressed or more fearful because it starts taking over. But if you still have not repented, confessed and broken the power of it, friends, it eventually will take over all of you and it will become who you are. If you imagine it, you'll think it. If you think it, you'll feel it. And if you feel it, you will become it. James says, God doesn't tempt anybody. But the enemy, the tempter, is always around. What Peter says in 1 Peter 5 verse 8, your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, looking for someone to devour. Our prayer in Matthew 6 is, Lord, lead us not into temptation. So temptation, trials, diverse difficulties are there on the path of life, friends. We have to live in such a way that we flee from it, we avoid it, we do not embrace it, we do not allow it to take root. Where does it take root? In your imagination. That's why your thoughts captive, the most, the most powerful weapon of warfare is taking your thoughts captive. 
making them obedient and casting out. That is not of God. I'm not going there. And friends, we've got to do that every day because we are coming under the onslaught. That is why we've got to stand. That is why we've got to come in the opposite spirit. That's why we've got to fill ourselves more with the spirit of God, the word of God. That is why we've got to put up self-control. No. That's why we've got to persevere until breakthrough. But the shrinking of the spirit gets smaller and smaller until eventually you can't hear the voice of the spirit at all. Because the first thing that does is your relationship with the spirit. The next thing that does, it starts affecting your soul and the way that you behave. And ultimately, it will control your whole body. And by this stage, you will be mastered by the sin that you allow to conceive. It brings death first to the, to the soul, to the heart, to the spirit then to the soul, and then to the body. Um, do not be deceived, dear brothers. James says in verse 16, but every good and perfect gift comes from above. So the temptation comes from the enemy. God doesn't tempt us, but you're responsible for resisting it. You're responsible for not allowing your flesh to receive it. You're responsible to not create a conception in your body and in your mind and in your thoughts. You're responsible for that. You're responsible for fixing your eyes on Jesus and not allowing that to take a hold, which is ultimately going to bring death. But if you receive, if you ask for wisdom, if you receive, if you resist temptation, he goes on to say this. Every good and perfect gift comes from above, coming down from the Father in the heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. What is every good and perfect gift? That word perfect means brought to finish, mature, wanting nothing, being complete, being fully grown and mature. Friends, the gift that God is talking about is you. You having walked the path of trials and difficulties and having rejoiced and stayed, you kept yourself full of joy, allowing the, the, the presence of, of God within you. The kingdom of heaven is righteousness, peace and joy, never losing your peace, never losing your joy, no matter what comes against you, holding on, clinging on, allowing your faith to go through perseverance. Coming into that place where you become the good and perfect gift, where you are fully mature, where you are lacking nothing, where you are complete, where you are fully grown in the things of God. That comes from above. You know, I've, I've taught you so many times that it says, I created you, Jacob, but I formed you, Israel. How did I form you? You went through rivers, difficulties, um, uh, relational difficulties, health difficulties. Sorry, that was waters. You went through waters, relational difficulties, health difficulties. You went through rivers, financial testing, tested in abundance, tested in lack. You went through the fire because he's making you perfect, friends. And it's not you making yourself perfect. It's him making you the perfect gift because everything that comes from heaven is good. And God is forming every one of us to be Good gifts from God to the world. And that is why we go through difficulties and we go through trials. And so going back and just summing, summing it up. So James says to them, when you go through difficulties, 
Rejoice, be glad, be full of joy. Why? Why? Because the Father is forming you into the perfect gift to this world from Him that cannot be shaken. It goes on to say here in perseverance must finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, lacking nothing. Every trial, every temptation, every situation that comes against you, every sadness, every dark thing that comes against you is not to cripple you. It's to cause the Spirit of God within you to rise up even more and for you to see the power and authority of the divine nature of God working through you at a far greater level, seeing things from heaven's perspective until you cannot be shaken and nothing that the enemy throws against you in any way rocks you because you are built so securely on Jesus Christ and you stand as a mighty man, as a mighty woman of God. As an example of God's goodness, His greatness, His glory, the perfect gift to the world is you. And that is why, friends, we go through trials and we go through difficulties. Verse 18 says, He chose to give us birth through the word of truth that we may be a kind of first fruits of all He has created. First fruits means an offering. A, um, a firstling or the first fruit, it means the first portion of the dough from the sacred bread to be prepared. It's a term used for somebody that's been consecrated unto the Lord. And so friends, I just want to encourage you. James, writing to a people that had been separated, that were going through difficult times, that, were, that felt as if they were scattered all over the place, said to them as a pastor, have joy, rejoice, be full of joy because everything you're going through is going to make you unshakable so that you will be the perfect gift from God to a dying world. God bless you, friends. Ask for lots of wisdom. He's got so much to give you. Spend lots of time, great effort, growing your faith through goodness and knowledge and self-control and stand 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 in perseverance until the breakthrough and people will marvel at your god likeness at your brotherly kindness and at the love that pours out of your life until we meet again we will carry on discussing james bless you so abundantly good night